Dotnet Rocks episode 796, recorded live Tuesday, August 21st, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Hey, guess what? It's .NET Rocks. Carl and Richard. Richard and Carl. And uh, we're talking Mars. Hey, man, how are you? I'm good. It's been a while since we've done a geek out. It's been a long time, yeah. And I appreciate that folks missed it enough to actually complain that we hadn't done one. Yeah, and uh, just so that people know, uh, as we speak right now of this recording... The virtual hard drive that stores all of the websites is copying to an internal hard disk in my kitchen. Nice. Isn't that great? Well, we've had a tough few days, haven't we? Yeah, we certainly have. <laughs> so, uh, sorry, you know, for all that, and thanks for bearing with us. But hey. anyway, let's talk Mars. You ready to get right into this, are you? Yeah. Um, Where do you want to start? I don't know. I mean, there are certain things that I take for granted that I know about Mars. Right. Like it is the most Earth-like planet of all the planets in our solar system, meaning it has a solid Earth, crusty kind of uh, terrain. Yes. It's smaller the, than you think, though. Yeah, it is smaller. Yeah. And the temperature varies wildly from very hot to very cold. Mostly very cold. It, ne- it, yeah. it, doesn't re- it almost never gets above freezing there. It's pretty darn cold because... There, the big thing that was discovered in the early missions. You go if you go all the way back to you know first missions in the 1960s, uh, and then the the Russians were the first to try and fly it, and they failed a lot. They very few Russian missions have made it. The first one missions that actually made it to Mars successfully were the mm. Mariner probes, mm. and we knew so little about Mars at that point. Right? It's just like right. they they figured it was very Earth-like. Right? You remember that the original telescopes were talking about there's canals on Mars. They, there was a whole conversation about Mars and so forth. But right. it was it when uh, when when Mariner uh, uh, four. So you know Mariner one and two, Mariner one failed, Mariner two went somewhere else, Mariner three failed. Like there was these all these Mariner missions, a whole bunch of them failed. But four was the first one that actually makes it to the planet, mm-hmm. and. That's the first time that we find out some key things about Mars that were a really big deal. The first was uh, daytime temperatures of negative 100 degrees Celsius, atmospheric pressures of only about 1% of Earth, and right. no magnetic field, no radiation belts. And they think there was a magnetic field. They think there was a core that may have stalled, right? Yeah. Isn't that one of the theories? When it, well, the best theory I've heard these days, and this is jumping you know, way past the 60s, is that Mars took an impact from an asteroid or some kind of uh, small planetary body, maybe a third its total mass, and it was enough basically to warp the whole planet. So yeah. on one side, there's a deep dish in the planet, and the other side where Olympus Mons is is sort of that bulge out the other side, and that actually broke the metallic core of Mars, and Mars has never really functioned right since. And without that, uh, without a radiation field, without those radiation belts, like we have the Van Allen belts around the planet, mm-hmm. all the solar radiation tears the atmosphere off the planet, and yeah. so has taken out most of the atmosphere of the planet at this point. We don't know how much it once had, but, you know, it's clear that there was more than there is right now. They only proved that back in the in the mid-60s. 
I remember reading, I think it was eighth grade, I read The Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury. Great, great story. Wonderful book. And, and uh, you know, I remember having this discussion about there is some atmosphere on Mars. And yes. I guess uh, Ray Bradbury took that into account when he wrote because, you know, the people there were just walking around. They had adapted to breathing smaller amounts of oxygen, which I guess would have to be really small amounts well, of oxygen. Huh? It looks like, you know, oxygen is a byproduct. Free oxygen is a byproduct of biological interactions. So right now there's like a 1% of the pressure of the uh, the earth there, and it's almost entirely carbon dioxide. Yeah. So it, you really wouldn't want to breathe it. At this point, it's still the you would boil like you were in a vacuum kind of conditions. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Kim Stanley Robinson's books, which was Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars, where they really mm-hmm. is a story of people terraforming Mars. And there are he takes some technological liberties, but there mm-hmm. are ways it's not out of realms, but that's a fairly far away at this point. Doesn't it really have to have a magnetic field, though, to have a, a kind of a living planet? I I think it's a, a you know we I don't think we understand the uh, planetary rules well enough to say one way or the other. It's not ever going to be Earth like without one, right? Uh, whether well, or not you we know, can and, create one is another question entirely. Right. True. I and I I'm thinking of solar flares and other things that the magnetic field pre- uh, protects us from. Right. You know the gamma rays and things. Yeah, and, you know, on the other hand, it's a hell of a lot less hostile than Venus. <laughs> yeah, you know, I guess that there's a bright side. <laughs> we've managed to put a couple of probes down on Venus, so really the Soviets have, that lasted yeah. minutes, right? <laughs> that literally melted once they got there. So, yeah. you know, meantime, uh, both the, the Russians and the Americans have successfully landed a number of interesting objects on Mars. Uh, you know, after Mariner came the Viking probes. And right. The vi- that's Carl Sagan's famous work, right? I mean, we, mm-hmm. we what what did Sagan do? What made him so amazing? One of those was he was deeply involved in the Viking project, which put those two landers down in the middle 1970s. And they were their goal was to figure out whether there had been life on Mars then too. But these were fixed landers; they couldn't go anywhere. Uh, but they were, you know, trying to figure out biosignatures, and it never really worked out all that well. But they got great images. It was an amazing mission. Well, wasn't that the mission where they got some data, but the the way they went about collecting it called their practices into question? There, that was part of it. What they were, you know, it's not it's not a trivial thing to measure what is life, right? Yeah. It's a very difficult uh, mission, and you've also got to get into. So, what can I actually transport? What can I remotely operate to do the test? So, there's mm-hmm. always some questions as to exactly what they measured on the Viking missions, and I, you know, commend anybody. Go ahead and take a look at this. These missions are now 40 years old. Yeah. uh, And they were way ahead of their time. They're amazing pieces of technology. But it was right at the edge of our capabilities. And and clearly mistakes were made and ambiguity was there. Uh, Things are more different on Mars than we've ever realized. The thing that's amazing to me is after Viking, nothing happened for 20 years. Yeah. You know, no, we didn't go back. There's this cadence where you can only fly a mission to Mars roughly every two years based on the positioning of the planets in their orbits so that you can actually mm. get there in a reasonable length of time. So, but everybody remembers Sojourner. Like that's, that's what really got people Mars crazy back in, 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 uh, in 1997. Was Sojourner the one that took the, the great photos, the first really good photos we had? That was Global Surveyor, which was after that. That got okay. the really great images of Mars where the cameras got so much better. But Sojourner was the airbag. Was Pathfinder was the main mission. 
So yep. Pathfinder was the airbags landing. Uh, well, uh, let's they- talk talk about the airbag for a minute because that was really fun. Um, the they wrapped the 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 rover in a bunch of balloons, right? And a ba- at a base station. So Pathfinder was the base station. Sojourner was the rover. The whole thing only weighed a couple of hundred pounds. But the idea was rather than a really precise landing with all of those jets, uh, the you know, the rockets and all that expense to land precisely, let's. Mm. Come down on, uh, come down on an aero shell. So you still, you know, enter the atmosphere at high speed like the Apollo capsules and everything else has. Then you get to the parachute stage that slows you down to a couple of hundred miles an hour. Once you're at a couple hundred miles an hour, you release from the aero shell and these nine balloons inflate around you to protect you and you bounce to the ground. You bounce around yeah. on the ground. I love it. And then it opens, of course, when it comes to a rest and the thing pops out and drives away. Well, and that was the whole tricky thing is it needed to be a pyramid-shaped set of balloons. You had to deal with yeah. the idea that some of them might burst on this impact because there's some violence to that. And you've got to get it to be able to orient itself, deflate the balloons, flip over and open up successfully. So an awful lot of technology worked. And it it didn't hurt. Did not hurt at all. They managed to land on July 4th, 1997. Yeah, I remember that. In the midst of Independence Day, here was this great, we are back on Mars, first time in 20 years. And they did it for a fraction of the cost of previous missions, too. Well, and that was part of the challenge, was that missions had, I mean, the Viking missions were monstrously big. They flew on Titan four rockets, like everything about them was costly. It was, you know, billion dollar missions. And here was a couple of hundred dollar, a couple of hundred million dollar mission, relatively speaking. It was flew on a Delta two, much smaller rocket. Like it was really a brilliant step forward technologically. And it put us on a cadence to routinely fly to Mars pretty much continues to this day. Although the uh, the next mission after Pathfinder was, well, actually before Pathfinder was a mission called Observer. Right. So Observer was one of what they called the, there was these, the great research missions. There was a bunch of these great re- research missions. Galileo, Cassini is the one, Galileo went to Jupiter, Cassini went to, to Saturn, there was Magellan, Ulysses. These were these, they were billion dollar missions. They were big, they were expensive. And in 1992, the Mars Observer satellite was sent. And this was a large spacecraft, right? You, you were substantially bigger, 2,000 pounds. It was going to be an orbiter. It flew on a Titan three. They flew mm-hmm. all the way to Mars, and then just as they were basically powering the engines up to do the orbital insertion burn, it disappeared. And, you know, you were talking about what we learned about Mars. A lot of what we learned about the terrain, we just learned in the last couple of years, um, in particular, the question of whether there was water. There was speculation that there was water, but we didn't really know for sure until the last mission. Isn't that well, true? Well, the, la- the last few, you know, the... the Losing Observer was a big deal. There was a billion dollars gone, and and people were pretty upset about that. But as is usual when they build these kinds of missions, there are copies of everything made. So the instruments that they made for Observer, there were seconds of them, the, the Mars Observer camera, the laser altimeter, the emission spectrometer, all these things. They had all these additional instruments. So there was discussion of, do we assemble another observer and fly it again well because they weren't really sure what destroyed the mission they, there was a, a theory about uh, hypergolic leaks and a you know, fuel system failure that basically blew the the thing apart 
Uh, they were loath to fly it again. But what they did do is they took those instruments and built smaller spacecraft from it. So looking at the success of Pathfinder, of this small spacecraft, after this big one, it fails. So rather than fly a, a multi-billion dollar mission, let's fly a bunch of 100 million, 200, 400 million dollar missions. And so the next one they flew from there was a, a spacecraft called uh, Mars Global Surveyor. And Surveyor had a bunch of instruments that had originally been on Observer. So while Observer was this 2,000-pound spacecraft, uh, uh, Global Surveyor was uh, about half that size. But uh, mm. Well, actually, no, it came out about the same size, but fewer instruments, a little lighter, a little simpler. Uh, it flew on a Delta II instead of a Titan III, so that cost less. It was all mechanisms to get prices down. So sort of out of the uh, – you hear this theme over and over again in Mars – because there's lots of failures. Mm-hmm. Out of the ashes of the failed observer mission came both uh, Global Surveyor and also uh, the there was an instrument called the Gamma Ray Spectrometer, which went on Mars Odyssey. There was the Climate Orbiter uh, mission as well, like a bunch of different missions that went on there. So Global Surveyor, in a lot of ways, was a remake of Observer. It was a bit smaller. It was a different design. It had a different orbital insertion technique. Uh, that was the first time they used aerobraking. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you know this trick. This is crazy. I mean, we see it in in we we see it in in science fiction movies, but we did this for real. So they take this spacecraft and they skim the atmosphere with it to slow it down to shape its orbit. Wow! So, ba- you know, ba- basically the spacecraft is a box with a bunch of a bunch of sensors and stuff on it and a big antenna and two large solar cells spreading out each way like wings, and they bend the wings back slightly so that they're they're sort of at an angle and then they they do small fuel burns that just skim the atmosphere and slow down the martian atmosphere to slow it down it's crazy precise flying but it means you don't have to haul enough fuel to actually slow the spacecraft down to do a full orbital insertion on its own so surveyor was the first time they'd ever done that was this series of aerobraking maneuvers so you went you start out in an orbit that's highly elliptical it goes up like 40,000 miles away from Mars and then back down to, to 250 miles and you gradually circularize it till it's about 300 miles in a, in perfect orbit. Wow. That's it, a trick. It was amazing. And, and surveyor, so surveyor is the one that the first time we saw the crazy good pictures. I mean, that, that, uh, orbiter camera was like the high end spy cams that they, they orbit around the earth to take pictures of military sites and things. And now they finally sent one to Mars and that's where you, you got all those cool pictures from. You know what's really cool about those pictures? The first thing I thought of was it looks like a Star Trek set from the '60s. It does. Gene Roddenberry got it right. Yeah, no, and and you know, so many of those old science fiction authors actually predicted so much accurately. It's amazing uh, how well they did. And that that spacecraft survived in orbit. It's dead now, but it ran for about seven years until 2006. They were they were able to keep uh, sending uh, images back, and so it did a lot of detailed photography. You know, its imaging was a was a big deal in terms of just sort of kindling this idea that yeah, there was lava on Mars, there was water flowing water on Mars. Mm-hmm. They you know all of these things, they're evidence of all kinds of real things. Uh, That's also where they first got their first uh, uh, weather reports from Mars. So mm-hmm. there's a cool story going back to the 60s. Go back to the Mariner series. 1969, two two spacecraft, Mariner 8 and 9, okay? Mariner 8 fails, just like with the 6-7 pair where 6 failed and 7 made it. 8 fails, 9 makes it. Now, huh. unlike 7, which did the flyby and took a few photos, 9 actually does an orbital insertion. 
decelerates and actually orbits around Mars. It gets there. No pictures are, can be taken. There's a planet-wide dust storm going on. All of oh, Mars man. is covered in dust. You can't see anything. Ah, oh. that's got to suck. That sucks. <laughs> <laughs> you flew. We flew 500 million miles over two years. Right. We finally get here. There's a dust storm. So yeah. they literally had to wait for months until the storm died down enough to actually be able to start taking pictures. And that's when they, they, that was the first set of pictures. I mean, granted, it was 1960 technology, nowhere near as high resolution, but mm-hmm. you were able to get these good pictures. But I bring that up because one of the things that Surveyor got were photos of dust devils. On mm. the surface, little tornadoes mm. running across the surface of Mars. I think there's some of my favorite pictures of Mars came from Surveyor. Those well, I'm going to have to find those. Yeah. So um, speaking of power, and we weren't speaking of power, but I'm speaking of power. Okay. How are these, How what, what has been the history of power for vehicles? Uh, solar power is very popular um, for, for vehicles, but I guess the Observer has a little nuclear power station on it, doesn't it? Well, so there's the, the radiothermal isotope generators, which are plutonium-powered heat boxes that they, gener- they use for electricity, have been used a few times on Mars. Uh, both Viking missions back in the 70s used them. And now Curiosity, the new lander, also used it. Yeah, Curiosity. That's what I meant, not the observer. But in between those, all solar powered. The problem is that solar power only works up to a certain size. You can only get mm. so much solar power. And for landers, it's especially problematic because mm-hmm. there's night. So you yeah. need batteries to survive the night. And there's dust. So over time, your solar cells get dusty and they become less and less efficient. And mm. seasons matter. So when you look at, at spacecraft like uh, the Phoenix Orbiter, which was the replacement for the polar lander, landing way up in the high north, which meant in wintertime, no light at all. And it doesn't mean that it just runs out of electricity. It's that it allows the machine to get so cold that stuff starts to break. And, you know, not an awful lot of electronics can survive negative 100 degrees Celsius. So when you get into wintertime, it gets so cold on Mars that the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere actually precipitates out as dry ice. And so you imagine what it does to electronics to have dry ice land on them. So yeah, not good. Most of these vehicles, they have a substantial amount of their power to heating the electronics enough to keep it running. And when you run out of power, you can't do that anymore, and it kills the machines. All right, so Surveyor was very cool. What happened after Surveyor? So Surveyor ran from, from uh, launched in 1996, uh, orbited in 1999, uh, lasted till 2006. Great spacecraft, right? And you figure after the disaster that was Observer, right, when they lost that, they made a good comeback, built a new spacecraft. But they also took a couple of other instruments that, that, that were spare off Observer, and they put it on another spacecraft called Climate Orbiter. Do you remember Climate Orbiter? No. So this one flew uh, in 1999 as well, but this is the one that they they used foot pounds instead of n- newton seconds, and so instead of putting it into orbit, they flew it into the planet. Oh, oops, ouch! Yeah, computational boo boo. So once again, several hundred million dollars flown on a Delta II rocket flew it into because the planet because of a math error. That <laughs> from from a math error exactly. Right. So study so, hard, kids. So they're like, oh, but, you know, th- th- 
our orbiter was part of another mission. There were two missions they flew at the same time, right? There was orbiter that was going to orbit the planet and collect climate data, and there was P- Mars Polar Lander. So a lander and an orbiter together, they'll have a uh, surveyor flying overhead to relay data because they're starting to use these satellites to actually, so the lander doesn't have to communicate all the way back to Earth. It just communicates to the, to the orbiting spacecraft, and then that orbiting spacecraft relays it back out because its solar cells are stronger and bigger. All these things are good. So Polar Lander comes in, makes it into the atmosphere, does the entry properly, and then disappears. Huh. They lost another one. That one they figure, this really sucks. So to have it fit in the aero shell, the legs on the lander retracted. And this thing would come down through an aero shell, then onto a, a parachute, slows down to about 200 miles an hour, then the aero shell breaks away, there's jets on the lander, it then soft lands down. The thing they figured is probably what happened to it, and nobody's absolutely sure, is while it's bouncing on the jets, and it's maybe 50 feet above the surface, it extends the legs to actually mm-hmm. be able to land. Then it should go the rest of the way down, shut down automatically, right? And the shutdown system simple. There's little probes at the end of the legs, so as soon as those probes touch the ground, it just cuts off the engines. So the guess is, when they extended the legs, the shock was strong enough to trigger as if it had landed, so it shut off the engines 50 feet off the ground. Huh. Crunch. You know, it, it, it's funny how two thirds of all the missions to Mars have failed, and not just us too. The, well, the more have... the yeah, two thirds is the net. Mostly Russian missions have failed. Only a few American missions failed, but nowhere near as many. Uh, we've we've done better, uh, but it is like, you know it's just sort of a reality that the stuff doesn't always work out, right? Like, like it, I guess a in, lot of failures in 1988 or so, uh, Phobos one was lost through a software error. Yep. Uh, yeah. And Mars 96, same thing, never even made it out of, uh, it made it into orbit. Like it's, oh, it's, it's really painful to go all over all of those. Yeah. But the concept uh, that they have with Surveyor, they were trying with Orbiter of this idea of let's have a communication satellite in orbit. It's got cameras, it's got good antennas to communicate back to the planet so that the landers don't have to do the, all the communication. They continued to do that. Uh, in 2001, they flew one they called Odyssey. It, with respect, you know, they named it because Arthur C. Clarke, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Right. So 2001 Mars Odyssey is still in operation today. So that's up there. It's, you know, it, it is in use. It is one of the orbiters. It's not the only one. Uh, there's another one called the Reconnaissance Orbiter, the MRO. And mm-hmm. that one went up in 2006. And it's uh, still in orbit. In fact, many of the awesome images of Curiosity. So this, there are photos of Curiosity actually on the surface. And you can see the blast marks from the landing and so forth. Those all come from MRO. And I so, just I just heard uh, that... Um, the InSight mission has got the green light just in the last uh, day or two. And what's the InSight mission? So the uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory learned their InSight mission to study the Martian interior. Uh, NASA gave them the go-ahead. That's awesome. The be- and the best time to ask is when you just landed things successfully. Right. And just looking yeah. at the pictures of InSight, like I, I look at that design and go, wow, you know what? That looks like Polar Lander. So they're yeah. taking a platform they already know how to build with better solar cells, and then they're going to dig into the ground. That's cool. Yep. Very cool. All right. Going to take the temp. Take the temperature of the, of the Martian landscape. Figure out what it actually means. Now, the, yeah. we can't talk about Mars if we don't talk about the other two rovers, Spirit and Opportunity. Yep. And Spirit still stuck in the mud, as far as we know. 
spirits trapped and and considered you know done they shut it down in 2010 opportunity mm-hmm. amazing you know what i love about these missions is and the same thing happened with sojourner right is they went on yeah they, you only committed to a 90-day mission right that was the requirement mm-hmm. you should be able to operate for 90 days well you know here we are at 3,000 days and still going so yeah, opportunity is still in operation. And I mean, the bad thing about a rover is that they get to go find interesting things. You know, they've been going around exploring different mineralization. And this is where it was opportunity that's found an awful lot of the evidence of water behavior, of, uh, you know, crystallization forms, all of those kinds mm-hmm. of things came from that. Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, as we're recording this, we're recording this before the first curiosity uh maneuver i guess the the you know the first travel yeah they haven't actually happen. moved it yet no well as of this recording tomorrow it's happening there you um, go. but they did blast the rock with a laser to take to to see what it's made of and i think that's the coolest technology that they've got yeah nothing wrong with a good laser oh is yeah it, so the thing that's amazing about curiosity is how flipping huge it is right yeah i mean it is big big so if you go back, you know, Sojourner, which is the the original little tiny uh, rover, is 20 pounds, right? Tiny little thing. Then you look at Opportunity and, and, and Spirit, substantially bigger, right? These guys are now 400 pounds. Curiosity, you know, clocks it at a clean 2,000 pounds. So size of a Mini Cooper is what they basically gauged on, although clearly, you know, designed a little differently, but it's a much bigger machine. Too big for solar cells, so it's got a an RTG on the back for power. And uh, But what a long mission, you know. They're guaranteeing yeah. a year, expecting a second year, and could run longer than that. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who have controls for Windows 8 already. They're looking for beta testers for their new RAD controls for Metro. You can request an access code at Telerik.com slash Metro to get access to the industry's first control set for building apps for Windows 8. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. I don't know what else to say. It's just, a, it's just an amazing thing. I've been watching it with just glued to the, to the websites and glued to NASA TV just watching it. Two, yeah, really exciting. I w- there's a few images that I'll include as links that 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 excite me the most about this. One was that the uh, so that we've all heard about the seven minutes of terror, how they did the reentry right. on this thing. So on the arrow shell, and there's lots of subtleties the way that arrow shell works. You know, it's one thing when you're talking about um, the the shuttle or even the new Apollo, the, the old Apollo, and the the new Orion capsules because they have to tip at a particular angle and they can use rockets to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that um, they did with uh, Curiosity is they actually deliberately put on, a, they put on a set of weights on the outside of the aero shell and then they drop two of them to make the, deliberately make the aero shell a slightly off balance so they'll naturally lean at the right angle without having to constantly use rockets to keep it balanced on the entry speed. So there's lots of this really smart, you know, clever ways to get that in. Very high speed entry, 13,000 miles an hour, about as fast as anything's ever entered with a big aero shell. Uh, then a, a, a hypersonic uh, per, uh, parachute comes out. Then the lower, the heat shield gets dropped. 
Right. And inside is uh, Curiosity at that point all folded up, but they were smart enough to put a camera on the bottom. So they got a video sequence of the, that camera saw the heat shield hit the ground. It's pretty awesome. So you could see this, this video. It's not a very long clip and it's not very high resolution, but the shield comes down with a massive impact. And also they timed that. Just think about the math of this after flying for two years. Entering into the atmosphere like that, they timed it so that the MRO, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, was overhead during reentry, and MRO got a photo of the aero shell after the heat shields drop when the parachute's out. And tell us about the the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter is is orbiting the planet, taking pictures, right? Right, and it's got incredibly high resolution cameras. But just the timing to be able to get that to be overhead mm. as this little tiny machine, relatively speaking, something the size of a Mini Cooper, is whizzing into the atmosphere at thirteen thousand miles an hour and deploys mm. its chute, and they got a picture of that. Yeah. At that moment. And then, of course, we know the story that after that, it drops out of the aero shell. You've got the sky crane and, and uh, Curiosity together. Mm-hmm. They, the, the rockets and the, all the fuel and stuff for the rockets, rather than having Curiosity carry that weight around, they put it on the separate sky crane. It comes down to 200 feet. Then it winds the, it winds up Curiosity on cables, puts it down, cuts the cables, and the sky train flies away. There's it another photo that blew my <laughs> mind, which is, the very first Hascam photos, right after it lands, it tries to take a picture right away to show that it's there, happened yeah. to get a shot of the impact of the sky crane. Ah, oh, that's awesome. Totally lucky. Totally yep. fluky. But it was, you know, looking at these pictures and you see this, this big plume, and then you, you know, in the next photo, which is maybe uh, uh, half an hour later, no plume anymore. I'm like, well, what the heck was that? And they do the math and figure out, I think that was the sky crane hitting the ground. Yeah. So since then, the MROs made a couple of really close passes over the site, and they've been able to identify the heat shield, the aero shell, the parachute, and the sky crane, as well as Curiosity on the ground. So they've got pictures of everything. So let's talk about Curiosity's mission, which is really to discover the 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 basis of life on Mars, if there is life or if there was life on Mars, or even if there is, I don't think anybody goes to the, you know, goes so far as to say, we hope to discover life forms there now. Yeah. But what they're certainly looking for are clues of life in the past and not necessarily, you know, any kind of aliens, but we're talking about microbial life. Yeah, and, and there's no certainty that there's actually anything left right now, But they are, and they're just looking for, are there organic compounds? Yeah. Because those compounds can only form under organic conditions, and they can also survive and anything else is extinct, so that's a good thing to look for. Uh, all of the chemical building blocks, so carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, sulfur, you know, right. these are all the compounds that you find uh, as part of life, and you're trying to see, did any of them get assembled into something that, that could potentially be alive? But, it, you know, the biological mission is less than half the total mission. They're doing all kinds of radiation measurements, looking mm. at, uh, at at those sorts of things. What's the state of water? What's the state of carbon? carbon dioxide, mm. you know, what's the current process of the atmosphere going on? Because if we're going to put people on Mars, and I, if you haven't read Robert Zubrin's Case for Mars, that's the best description of a realistic mission to Mars, like the way that it could work, that yeah. isn't the, you know, Saturn V kind of, we build a gigantic rocket and fly everything there. Uh, if we're really going to create sustainable missions to Mars, we need to do a certain amount of production on Mars. And the biggest thing is, 
can we make the fuel from Mars? Right. The fuel you need to fly back. What I think is really amazing is this this laser has a, basically a spectrum analyzer built into it. Mm-hmm. So when it blasts these rocks into powder, it can look at the compounds and the molecular compounds in that powder to find. And, and now they've landed in a site where they're driving up to this shelf that has fallen away. And so you will be able to see geological strata. And they'll be able to to target different ages, you know, and look back in time at the molecular compounds of what's going on, just like we would do here on Earth. Yeah, and I th- that's just terribly exciting to me. Yeah, it's it's huge, and and it's interesting that craters are the right place to land. It's something that you look at, and the Gale Crater is a whopper. That's yeah. a big crater. There's going to be a lot to look at. It's going to take a while to, to for them to go through all this, and they've got a couple of years. Uh, mm-hmm. of planned missions already to go through and, and actually dig around to all of this. So, and you read I, the stories of the people who are operating the, the rover. They actually have to live on Mars time, They not Earth time. <laughs> yeah, because it, it, daylight matters, right? It, it, the, 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 where you are and uh, matters to what you can do. So it's certainly an interesting problem for their for their lifestyles. But what a great job. You know, oh yeah. How who could be, you know, I gotta imagine as a bunch of ten, eleven year olds just seeing this going, boy, that's what I want to do. Yeah. You know, we gotta spend more time on Mars. I mean the the real goal here is I guess you know, the next missions after this has got to be the the sample return mission. Mm-hmm. Can we actually find a way to put interesting rocks from Mars into a capsule and fly it back to the Earth? Mm. And part of the experimentation that Curiosity is able to do, studying the uh, the atmosphere, would be: can we extract methane from the Martian atmosphere to be used as a fuel? So, right, right around the same time that Curiosity was landing, there was a, an accident at NASA with a lander cord called Morpheus that they were testing. And the thing that's interesting, they t- call it a moon lander, but it's the interesting thing about the lander technology is that they were methane engines rather than hypergolic engines or mm-hmm. kerosene engines or, or, or uh, liquid hydrogen engines. They were methane they, engines. Because they think they can manufacture methane on the planet's surface. Right. So imagine a, a, a sample return mission being you fly a rocket there that that has no fuel in it. Mm-hmm. You have a factory on board that space, that lander that actually can then fuel up that rocket. Then you have a rover that goes out and finds the rocks that are interesting, brings them back to that capsule, loads them, and then that capsule is able, that rocket is able to fly back out of the atmosphere of Mars all the way back to the Earth. That is just so flippin' cool, I can't stand it. And if you think about launching from Mars, Richard, that since there's not a lot of atmosphere and, and not as much gravity you're you're going to have you're going to require less fuel to get off yeah. the ground much smaller rocket to get out of mars atmosphere but it's a heck of a lot simpler than trying to put a big orbiter in and right. then fly a mission down to the ground and then back up to the orbiter and then fly that away again and yeah. to be able to actually put a rocket down on mars and fly it back would be the way to go and this is what zubrin talks about in a case for mars that if you can do that with the sample mission you can scale that up for a human mission right so fly so a rocket the, yeah the return yep. rocket goes first. Return rocket goes first and is fueled before humans leave. So you mm-hmm. already have your return mission in place and good to go before you even you try and come. Because it's still, with current technology today, 
it's still 18 months to get to Mars. And that's right. a long time to fly. Then you land. Then either you stay a week and fly back in the, that same 18-month window, or you stay for 18 months, and then you fly back for 18 right. months. Right, Which is, you know, now you're talking four or five-year-long missions. Mm-hmm. So there is a whole, you know, now we get into the battle of chemical rockets in general. You know, chemical rockets only go so fast, are only so capable. I did this math years ago, and I've never forgotten these numbers. I think I've mentioned this to you before. If you could build a spacecraft that could continuously accelerate at 1G, so normal Earth gravity acceleration, so you would not even notice. It would be like you'd be able to stand up. So half the flight to Mars, you accelerate at 1G. Half the flight to Mars, you decelerate at 1G. You follow me? So the yep. whole time you're under one gravity, which is great. How long does it take to get to Mars if you can continuously accelerate at 1G? It's going to be a long time. Three days. What? Three days. That's the I, thing, my friend. I don't we understand. fire rockets for 5, 10, 20 minutes on an orbital burn, uh, on an orbit escape burn to Mars, and then we glide the rest of the way. If oh, I could, see. If you could come up with an engine with enough power to burn continuously at an acceleration rate of a G, you can get to Mars in a big hurry. Well, you're still going to have to get out off the ground at several Gs. Oh, yeah. This, this, yeah. this would be a spacecraft you would build in orbit. And there's yeah. a couple of interesting, I think Vasimir is the most interesting engine that exists today that even has the possibility of doing this. So you'd have to pretty much go to the moon and take off from there or something. No, I think you could do you could do it from Earth orbit. It's not hard to do. But, you know, yeah. if you've got acceleration at that strength, you can go a fair ways. They, the mm-hmm. point is, we don't have that sophisticated of technology for flying interplanetarily right now. Mm-hmm. We glide a lot. And if we could work yeah. on more advanced engines, we could push these things forward. I mean, fundamentally, the chemical rocket engines we're using today were designed and built in the 1950s and 60s, and they really have not changed much. Right. It is time to focus on using more advanced technologies and pushing these things forward. And uh, we suddenly an awful lot of stuff gets easier if you don't have to build a spacecraft that keeps humans alive for five years. Right. Right. Sure. If you if you can make these missions in weeks, then you know a whole lot more comes possible. Hmm. One G, huh? Just accelerate at one G towards Mars, and when you get halfway there, decelerate at one G. It's an awful so, lot of thrust. Yeah. Have I blown your mind? Well, uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to put it into perspective. When you're flying in a plane, yep. What uh, are you at one G? Yeah, well, you're being pulled by Earth's gravity, right? You, you, that, this is one of the problems if, with a trip to Mars for humans, is under the existing set of technology, you're going to be in free fall. Now, right now on the International Space Station, y- you can only be up there for six months before you get serious permanent harm done to you. So you're supposed to come yeah. down every six months. How are we going to have people away from the Earth for five years? Right. Right? Or even a year, for that matter. You just... Mm. We now you have, and even at six months, you have to do a lot of exercise to maintain your body. Nobody's right. ever built a spacecraft that will actually keep you at a reasonable gravitational rate. So we'd have to build, come up with a whole new technology to create a spinning spacecraft that would allow you to have sufficient stress on your body so that you wouldn't lose so much of your bone mass and all of the other problems that come from being at zero G. Now, what's the gravitational field of uh, of Mars? About a third of Earth. 
So you could, you know, if you were somehow to survive on the surface of Mars, let's say, yep. in a structure or whatever, you would have to be wearing lots of lead to... Uh, well, yeah, yeah, there's a whole issue about uh, solar radiation, and it's a much bigger issue when you're flying to Mars. Oh, I didn't mean for radiation protection, but that is also a good reason to wear lead. I mean, for weight. Well, it, when, you know, humans function fine on the moon. The moon's about one-sixth of a G. Right. They were only there for a few days, but they, you know, they were able to get around. They had a few uh, challenges to use. Right. On Mars, they would be at one third of a G. And so for the ground based mission, that would be one set of problems. The bigger mm. issue here is being at zero G for 18 months to get to Mars. Yeah. And now right. you may not be able to ha- handle Martian gravity, much less Earth gravity. Right. So we've got to come up with a way to keep them healthy, and that means spinning the spacecraft. Or a far better way would be keep the spacecraft constantly accelerating. All you need is this fictional engine that nobody's managed to build that could keep accelerating at a G. Mm -hmm. And just don't have one yet. There's a couple of interesting technologies out there that are just not grown up enough. I get it now. When you say continuously accelerating, you mean that, like getting faster and faster and faster. So you're always at 1G. Faster and faster and faster, accelerating at one G for 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 a day a day and a half, and then decelerating at one G for a day and a half. Yeah, that's 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 a lot. That's a lot. That's of a power. lot, right? When you consider right now, the best orbital insertion rockets run about twenty minutes, right? And that's chemical powered rockets. It makes this cannot be a chemical rocket. You cannot carry enough fuel to make that make sense. Right. It has to be a different kind of technology rocket. It has to be, at this point, it have to be a nuclear rocket. Mm-hmm. And there are different kinds of designs for nuclear rockets, or what really would they be called electrical rockets, that start getting into this spectrum. You know, the, I, and again, I, I mentioned uh, uh, Vasimir is the, the engine that they're actually looking at flying on the space station. That's an electrical engine that has enough thrust to keep the space station in orbit. And maybe they could add a bunch of these together. You might get to that kind of power. Wow, wow. There's possibilities, man. I mean, also, to think now about. we have the whole battle about nuclear power in space. Oh, what's the what's the battle there? Well, it's the, dangerous. Yeah, the big concern is... I don't want to launch a reactor from Earth because well, if it blows up, we, there's uh, bye-bye. We, we, we did it back in 2011 again, right? That's what was on board Curiosity was an RTG engine, and that is powered by plutonium-238. Exactly the stuff that kills people with uh, cancer at one part per billion. It's mm. dangerous, dangerous stuff. Now, the way that engine is built, uh, that the the, uh, the RTG is built, is pretty much indestructible. In fact, we have had reentry of an engine like that uh, in the form of Apollo 13's lunar lander. When Apollo 13's mission failed and they managed to get those guys home safely, uh, the uh, they used the uh, lunar lander as a lifeboat, and it was powered by an RTG, and it re-entered the atmosphere after they uh, dumped it to to actually get home safely. And that RTG uh, landed more or less intact with no radioactive leaks at the bottom of the South Pacific. It's still down there today. Hmm. So these Wild. are tough engines. They're very powerful, but they don't generate the kind of power that um, we would need for something like the Vasimir system. You know, you're talking about an an RTG generates a few hundred watts of power, and you're going to need millions of watts of power to to get an engine, electric engine of that kind of force. I was going to say, what do you think the top speed would be right before deceleration starts at uh, after day and a half? 
That's a great question, and it would be an interesting piece of math to, to work out. I don't know the answer to that right now. It's not mm. that fast, but it's fast. Yeah. And we've made spacecraft go awfully fast. It's just that we tend to do that by slinging them past planets. Right. And we don't have an option flying to Mars. There's no planets in the way. <laughs> so, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread. But now, of course, it's component1spread.net. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.net and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Component 1. Smarter components for smarter developers. Wow, certainly is interesting. So there are so many people out there who think that this is all one gigantic, huge waste of time. It's an inhabitable planet. We have a planet that's perfectly fine right here. We should spend that money on cleaning it up and making sure that it doesn't destroy us. I don't disagree with the sentiment that the mo most of the money should be spent on our planet, taking care of our planet better than we've been doing. But I would point out that the amount of money spent on NASA and on missions like this represents pennies, pennies on the dollar. And it is so deeply built into our psyche to just look to the future. We've got right. to be working on the future at least a little bit right. all of the time. And Stephen Hawking's the one who said, it is in the best interests of mankind to get m people living on other planets in the long run. The way we, you know, how do we prove that a, a society can survive or that a civilization can survive an extended period of time? It's by being resistant to disasters. We've started cataloging asteroids with the presumption mm. that we'll never allow to happen to the dinosaurs to happen to us. Right. Uh, where, you know, we're going to start dealing with that one. But to actually put a population of humans living and thriving on another planet, there is no more worthy goal. I mean, you're talking about the basics of, of human nature. You know, we've we've got to do that. We will do that. The question is, how long are we going to take before we get it done? That's a good question, Richard Campbell. <laughs> so are you up on the conspiracy theories around Mars? Because, you know, one of the things we as human beings love to do is project all our fears onto foreign bodies. In oh, sure. Like the face on Mars. Oh, yeah. The face. That yeah. was a good one. That's a good one. Yeah. That, that, uh. Uh, aliens left behind a carved face on Mars. It, and it just, you know, it's one of those things where, uh, it's a, it was one, a lucky photo at a particular angle that, uh, because of the shadows, uh, worked out that way. The Viking orbiter, the, 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 that was part of the Viking mission in the 1970s snapped the original photo that looks like a face. I mean, since then, uh, MRO, Global Surveyor, they've all taken other pictures of it to show it's a rock. Uh, right. and it's got some interesting indentations on it, but it's not a face. But uh, you know, th those things just they, people see what they want to see too, right? Right. You know, I'm a I'm a big believer in this idea that they the the reason conspiracy theories and conspiracy tends to persist is because people would rather 
know that there's somebody in charge even if they don't know who they are and they don't have any influence over them than the alternative, which is that nobody's in charge. We're just making it up as we go. The face really does look like a face, though. It's really uncanny. It's an awesome Uh, picture. It is an awesome picture. Yeah. And then there are... Yeah, there are other ones like happy faces that uh, they found in craters that look like happy faces. Yep. There's, uh, yeah, there's the Homer Simpson one. It's like, you know. And then, oh, then there was the trees that people thought they were seeing. Yeah. Remember the trees? So there was uh, pictures of uh, on from Mars that essentially looked like a whole bunch of evergreens on the surface, but it was really an optical illusion of uh, shadows in ravines that were on the edges of cliffs that just look like they're inverted and right. standing up straight. Yeah, that same sort of uh, uh, illusion. You know, we've uh, the same sort of illusions around Mars as well, right? Where the lighting shapes are funny and it just doesn't look real, or you know, it. And then you, why are you covering this up? Right. Uh, you got to admit, NASA for the most part is pretty darn transparent. You know, they're pretty yep. clear about uh, here's what it is. You know, here's another photo from a different angle. Look, it looks totally different. You know, because really, you got to think those guys want to find this stuff too. Yeah. And, and this day of the internet, like, you just can't keep a secret, even if you right. wanted to. Right, right. You know, it's, it's tough. Then there was the uh, famous fake of the, of the Coke bottle cap. Do you remember that? No. So, What's so, this about? so when, you remember when the, uh, I guess it was the Sojourner that took all the photos you were saying? Mm-hmm. All those great photos came back from the rover and, uh, somebody had photoshopped like a bottle cap from a beer can or a Coke bottle or something. <laughs> and put it <laughs> and put it up on the internet, but then of course NASA's like, uh, no, here's the actual photo, and you can see that somebody just photoshopped this in. Somebody had some fun with it, and yeah, there you go. Yeah, bottle cap. And the NASA folks have their sense of humor. The JPL folks, they're funny. Like you look at what they named rocks and various. Are you know everything needs a name when you're going to talk about it, and maneuver around it, right? Like the uh, the the point in the center of the Gale Crater, they've called Mount Sharp. <laughs> you know, it, it just it goes on and on. Every time they find a rock, they're going to give it a name, and it's going to be something silly. You know, they just it has to be distinctive. It doesn't have to be important. They got to name a lot of stuff so they don't fuss too much about uh, you know what kind of names they're they're going to use. There'll be a whole bunch of them. Yeah, and then there was the other one about the glass tubes. So if you Google Mars tubes photos, you see like there there there's supposedly people are finding glass tubes. Uh, pictures on Mars, and you know these are just natural phenomenon, but um, they're claiming that the structures don't look natural. Well, and and the funny part is that they so many of these things are very natural. They are formed by wind. Some of them are formed by water. You know, it just the the planet the planet's cooler than you think. Mars is not a dead planet. Stuff's going on there. It's not necessarily the stuff we expect and know about, and we're still figuring it out. There's always things going on up there. So uh, the the real challenge we'll get into, you know, can we actually terraform and should we terraform the planet? Uh, I, I recommend the uh, Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars reading the, that set of their fictional books. But I love the idea that, of course, a group of engineers show up on Mars and want to terraform it to be more Earth-like. But eventually right. a group of ecologists show up and say, oh, no, you know, Mars is the way Mars is and we should preserve Mars in its natural state. Right. And there's... 
there's points to both arguments. Like I just did, you know, the best kind of science fiction to me is the one that, that takes where we are, just extends it a little further and then makes us work through the challenging debates of, you know, should we have technology like this? Even if we can do it, should we do it? You know, that, that, and what's the impact of that? What are we left with? You know, why would we want another earth when we can have a Mars? Right. So what do you think the curiosity is going to find? Uh, I think we're going to find more water. Uh, yeah. I think we're going to find uh, an atmosphere we can work with and we're sort of working in conditions. Uh, I, I think we're mostly going to uh, further affirm things we know. Uh, I hope we get blindsided. I hope we find fossils. Wouldn't that be awesome? That would be awesome. You know, I, I, they pick the right spot. If there's any chance at all, it'll be there. Um, we really haven't gotten into the ma- any of the major mineralization of Mars. Like, are, right. are, are there valuable minerals? Because, you know, as we get further down the path of wanting to do manufacturing on Mars, we're going to need, need to find aluminum, rare earths like yttrium, cobalt, you know, the stuff that it takes to do rail manufacturing. And, and being able to find that, there's a, there's a theory floating around that the Earth is an unusually mineral-rich planet. That the process of forming the moon removed a lot of low density minerals from the planet so that the high density valuable minerals were easy to get at. And Mars may not have had that. So they're going to, those minerals are going to be different proportions. It might right. get much harder to do mining. Then the more we understand about Mars, the more we can start to understand about what planetary bodies outside of the solar system are going to be like and how unusual the Earth might be. You know, in our up-and-coming nuclear show, we're going to talk about the importance of helium in certain situations and uh, how there's a shortage of helium yes. on, on the Earth. And, and it's interesting that helium was just discovered in the moon's wispy atmosphere. Uh, yeah, and as a natural byproduct of solar radiation. They're, they're, well, figure that the moon is coated in trinium, which is hydrogen with three neutrons attached to it. Normal hydrogen has one. Deuterium has two, trinium mm-hmm. has three, mm-hmm. uh, and and it's uh, mostly valued for stuff uh, like nuclear fusion. Uh, but you know the idea that they, yeah, the moon may have this resource that is actually relatively rare on the Earth and mm-hmm. could actually pay for the cost of what it takes to do manufacturing on the moon. Uh, there's got to be something like that in Mars. There's going to be things we find on Mars that uh, that ultimately say, well, this is a an asset to Mars that's distinct. Another thing we were talking about, and I don't know if you want to save this for the next Geek Out show, but uh, is that microwaving power turns out to be a lot safer than they thought it was. Yeah, that's a whole, you know, space-based power is a really interesting thing. And uh, it's not as, it's, it's a, an, we're, we're at a technical readiness level almost high enough to say we should just build it. Uh, the question is, you know, can you justify the cost? I think the military are the ones who are ultimately going to go there. But, right. you know, that might be a way to uh, support people on Mars, too, that you start building space-based power platforms uh, on Mars and beaming the power to the surface. Right. Because flying yeah. nuclear reactors around is hard, and they're heavy. And I, I also seem to recall some sort of laser being used for uh, microwaving that can that can actually go a really, really, really far distance to microwave power with a laser. 
Yeah, uh, with different spectrums have different behaviors, right? So we can we can fire them further. There's there's a lot of experimentation there. I mean, one of the theories is that we could use laser light to accelerate spacecraft. So rather than carry the fuel and the engine with you, you just put a big reflector on the spacecraft and then use a fixed-in-place laser to push the spacecraft away. And if you can get 1G, there's your engine. Well, there you go. That's a, that's a lot of pushing, but you know, it's a you lot of pushing. Think about how much weight you can shed if you don't have to carry all that stuff. Yeah, it's true. So, you know, what if we set up a pair of lasers, one on Mars, one on uh, orbiting the Earth, and we use them to fire spacecraft back and forth between? It's interesting. Cool I'd hate ideas. to be a duck flying in the way of that thing, though. Yeah, <laughs> look out. Well, uh, it's, you, know. you know, we and we mentioned this in the space elevator discussions. The space elevator won't hold perfectly still. It's a thin cable going up into orbit, uh, and things are going to collide with it, and it has to be right. able to survive that, and it's going to be hard on whatever collides with it. Right. All right, my friend, that's a show. You think so, huh? I think so. Well, uh, always fun to talk to you, and uh, excited about what's happening with Mars. Well, it's always fun to talk to you, Mr. Campbell. I, I th- really think we should call these shows Richard's Brain. well well you know got to think about something yeah it's good stuff all right we'll see you next time on dotnet rocks hey thanks for listening and remember pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on dotnet rocks and other experts in the field pluralsight.com .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got transmit a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a time bomb.